from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 39, recorded March the 7th, 2023. I am your returned master of ceremonies. I was Jason Snell, uh, the gray. Now I am Jason Snell, the white. You shall not pass. With me as always, I'm going to do Lord of the Rings the whole time, is Julia Alexander, director of strategy here and at Parrot Analytics. Hi, Julia. Jason, I'm so excited you're back and so excited to hear about your trip. Uh, yeah, well, I went to New Zealand um, and so I cool. I did uh, for the media related things. I, I am, you know, our travel agent said, are you a uh, are you a Lord of the Rings fan? And I was like, you know, OK, I have I do not personally think of myself as a Lord of the Rings fan. And yet I have all the movies on uh you know blu-ray and have watched them we watched them you know half of each of the extended editions over six nights at christmas that's that happens a lot hobbit hanukkah in our house that happens um and uh so it's one of those things where it's like well i guess i am sort of but like it's not part of my identity and it's like but yeah yeah, we've seen all the movies and my wife and i both are like yeah so we did we went to the weta workshop in wellington where they do props for lots of movies uh, but also did all the lord of the Rings stuff and we did go to hobbiton yeah, in Waikato near uh, Auckland. So yeah, you take photos of you guys in like the Hob- that Hobbit, Hobbit holes, like and they've got the they've got the yeah. two different scale Hobbit holes. They've got the big Hobbit holes and the little <laughs> Hobbit holes, so you can look like a wizard or like a <laughs> Hobbit, depending on on which actor is needed for you know which shot. Uh, anyway, uh, while I was there at Hobbit, and they're like, hey, uh, they and they're going to make more movies. And I had just seen that story. And so that's, I mean, why not? What a way to get my vacation to make sense. In the context of this podcast, David Zaslav, our buddy Zaz, made a, an announcement on an earnings call while I was gone that said they have a deal to make multiple new films based on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings uh, book and related books. Um for, and and all everybody out there is probably thinking, well, wait a second. I, I thought Amazon had that, and, and it's like, yeah, well, The Rings of Power is a different. It's based on other works with different rights that are, and the rights are so weird here. But these are rights that uh, that Zaz has got his hands on that are with um, the company that bought them from Saul Zentz, the the legendary producer. He got rights to Tolkien. Uh, in the 70s for the animated series or animated movies i want to say where they made like a couple animated movies mm-hmm. including the one that doesn't have an ending that i remember watching mm-hmm. as a kid and being like what the hell frodo lost a finger and that's it um <laughs> and so yeah here we are it's uh it's it's there are i i, I guess i made it happen that's what i'm saying i went to new zealand now they're new lord of the rings movies do you have a take on this? It seemed very much like Zaz wanted some happy news uh, for people, and and yet uh, news with no actual details of any kind. Um, first of all, I love that the downstream podcast made this happen. Uh, yep, this had is to beautiful. do it. This is this is the news that um, we I, try to do with this podcast. I simply had to walk into Mordor, and then I made it happen. <laughs> I mean, here's my. My initial take on it, beyond what you very elegantly um, summarized as like the major rights issues with The Lord of the Rings, which is that they are split up and spread out in a way that is almost blasphemous for true fans because it's just owned by so many different corporate overlords. Um, The major take that I have is, you know, from a theatrical 
perspective, if you look at the decay and decline in box office between Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit versus, let's say, the main Harry Potter films and uh, the Fantastic Beast series, what's really impressive is that despite The Hobbit not being of, um, let's say, exceptional quality compared to Peter Jackson's original trilogy, there actually was a pretty uh, a low de- decay. It was a very, 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 very small decline in box office revenue. Um, and what we see with Amazon's performance with The Rings of Power, although it's probably slightly muted compared to what they would have liked to have seen, it was still really impressive. You know, it was still a type of show that was generating significant interest. And so if you're Warner Brothers Discovery and your main goal is to effectively play it a little safe, right? Your goal is to kind of figure out, okay, if we're going to be in the theatrical space still, what are the theatrical plays that we're going to do? I mean, you kind of look at big fantasy, big sci-fi, big action, big IP, having the rights to Lord of the Rings and saying, we're going to kind of take another shot at this with some star filmmakers, the evidence leading up to it showcases or or at least it makes you feel pretty comfortable in that decision. But the issue is that similar to Fantastic Beasts, similar to The Hobbit, um, you get a lot of consumer fatigue and you get a lot of issue of quantity over quality. And I think as we're seeing play out in the Marvel space in particular, you get to a moment where people are kind of like, I don't necessarily want to do this anymore. I said on the last podcast um, while Jason was was hanging out in Hobbiton um, that you get to a point where people are like, man, like I've got kids. Like I don't, I don't have time to think about how right. all this relates to each other. Um, and I think with Lord of the Rings, what you might inevitably walk into, you know, Amazon's doing like five seasons of the show and then they'll probably want to do more stuff. And you've got Warner Brothers doing this and you've got, you know, potential other aspects of those rights being divvied up and therefore other players getting into it in some capacity. Um, you get to a point where you've got really strong audience fatigue and they're just going to naturally gravitate towards the best or better form of the stories within that space. And especially when you get into things that kind of feel like Lord of the Rings, but aren't, right? So like Rings of Power, like kind of feels like Lord of the Rings. There are characters within Lord of the Rings that we recognize, but it's not Lord of the Rings. You get to a point where the consumers then make their choice about where they want to spend their time and their money. And that can have a really strong impact on the top and bottom line of these projects because you're going into it expecting, you know, we're going to invest this amount of money because we expect to see this level of return. And if the fatigue is there, you know, if we look at kind of what's happening, even with Ant-Man, the the new one that came out, like it had a pretty spectacular first weekend, but then the week over week decay between season, uh, between week two and week three has been really significant compared to other Marvel movies. And you get to a point where like that audience fatigue and that level of decline in quality, at least from an audience perspective, really impacts the actual process of the the filmmaking and and what you're putting out. And all of which is like a long way of saying that I don't think there is a reason beyond the fact that it kind of feels like a safe bet for WBD to put out Lord of the Rings movies again. And I do think that we exist in this moment still. I've tweeted about this many, many times where we are as an industry prone to saying we're going to do like five of these things, like we're going to do three of these things without actual proof of concept that we're going to, that even the first one's going to pay off. A great example is actually um, the new show from AGBO from the Russo brothers uh, that's coming to Citadel. It's coming to Amazon. The trailer dropped yesterday. And that show is like, insane James Bondy looking, you know, level of investment. And they like, it's designed ready to have like four spinoffs and like be a a multi-country, multi-language franchise. And it's a whole thing where you're like, 
maybe this works, but there's no proof of concept that this is going to work. And so we're so committed to these things. Like we're committed to doing five Avatar movies. We're committed to doing like five Fantastic Beasts movies. And now it's three. And, you know, you're committed to doing this trilogy of The Hobbit. And like by the third one, people were like, I'm not really as into this anymore. And now we're doing Lord of the Rings. And I kind of think it's one of those situations where you don't have to be involved in it, especially if you're WBD and you own a lot of other IP. And I think Lord of the Rings you have to tread so carefully with because it's so easy in many ways to kind of replicate the format of what that is and to do it in a better way that doesn't lead into audience fatigue and audience confusion. So I think it's actually a riskier bet than they think it is, but I can see their prerogative for choosing to do it. Yeah. The counter argument would be something like Avatar, right? Where you're like, where you say, I know there was only one Avatar movie, but everybody... This goes back to me saying, am I a Lord of the Rings fan or not? And the answer is like, if you look at my behavior, the answer would be yes. And yet I don't have it as part of my like fan persona. It's like, it's just not there. Um, Avatar felt like that too. It's like, how many fans of Avatar are there? It's not the same question as like, what addressable audience that knows what Avatar was and maybe has some general positive feelings and that can be marketed to about a return to that world. And the uh, the Avatar sequel has been uh, extremely, and that's an understatement, successful. And so Lord of the Rings is like, yeah, the Hobbit movies didn't do that well. I mean, they did pretty well, but they weren't as they weren't loved like the original Lord of the Rings movies were. But like when I think about it, that would be my counter argument is there might, you know, it might be Avatar or it might be Harry Potter. um, And we don't, you know, because it's derivative too, right? And in in Avatar, at least it's a direct sequel. Harry Potter was like Fantastic Beasts is not the same. Um, Lord of the Rings and then The Hobbit. And that wasn't the same. Uh, The rights issue here is so strange, but uh, basically Amazon only has an access to very narrow, basically the appendices of Lord of the Rings. Whereas my understanding is this deal is for sort of everything else. So uh, the rest of Tolkien's world building, the Silmarillion, for example, um, you know, Tolkien only really wrote those two proper novels uh, or four, if you want to count it that way, be that way, fine, uh, nerds. But um, but he he did. I mean, the, the joke always with Tolkien was that the novels were um, an exciting way for him to tell stories inside the giant world he created. But the world he created was like really what he was doing. It was, it was creating that ma- that that fantasy world. Uh, the books just happened to be an exercise in telling stories inside it. Um, and so there's a rich thing to. Uh, to draw from here, the question is just what do they choose to do? Will it tap into audiences' interest and and nostalgia for Lord of the Rings? I thought it was interesting that there was a statement from uh, Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philippa Boyens, the people who made the original Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogy, saying basically like um, they're in the loop, which is a, a, an amazing, like, I thought that was real uh, PR jujitsu there to be like, we we haven't blocked peter jackson out right he hasn't committed to anything <laughs> and, and they, they, they're actually quoted as the we look forward to speaking with them further right it's like okay so it's like it's not a no it's not a yes but it's also not a like we we're not working with them on either right. side and that's like a, again reassuring to investors i suppose when zaz is trying to go like you never know it could be optimism everybody um so we'll we'll see where it goes but uh, I, for those everybody who would say, "Oh, Lord of the Rings, whatever," um, it's old. Uh, it's done. Nobody, nothing's left there. 
uh, I would say in terms of Tolkien's text, you're kind of right. But I would say Avatar is the cautionary tale for me where like you got to understand like with, with Avatar it's like you got to understand it's the biggest movie ever. Like you may not, there may not be lots of Avatar fans out there, but it was the biggest movie ever. And with Lord of the Rings, it's like, you got to understand it's Lord of the Rings that won the best picture Oscar. Like it, 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 it's Lord of the Rings. You can't, can't count it out. Can't count the kid out. Right. And and I think there was, what's interesting about the Avatar comparison, because I agree with you. Um, the other thing about Avatar is that both when it was being produced at Fox within the first one and then distributed, and then now the second one with Disney, there was a really great Bob Iger um, interview on the A16Z podcast and talking about like creativity and kind of leadership. And he spoke about Avatar specifically and this idea of like how you work with certain directors and how you work with certain directors in the context of like uh, needing to get product out, product in this case being a film. And he talked about, you know, you kind of look at Marvel and Marvel's on a schedule, right? Like Marvel has its dates planned out like six, seven years in advance. And those dates may change from time to time, but they're pretty planned out. And I think this has led, you kind of hear James Gunn, who's now overseeing DC, talk about this a lot, where the fact that they're locked into a lot of dates has led to kind of this third act issue within the superhero movies. It's led into this point of like, well, we have to get this out in order to kind of make sure that this is in line with the TV show, which is in line for the next project. And like, we have a whole universe. It's very, very comic booky. Like, you know, that that's how comic books operate. And what's interesting about the way that Iger spoke about Avatar is that he, he said specifically, it's like, Jim Cameron is not a director where you say, I got to have this in the next year. Right. Like Jim Cameron tells you when it's done. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, and we're just going to lean into it. And we're going to give him the money that he needs for it because this is, it's Avatar. It's like Avatar 2 is people go to see that movie because it's an event, it's an experience. And I, and I do worry about Zaz and just the kind of operations that they're currently in. You know, they are a debt focused company right now. They are trying to, they're making a lot of safer bets. They're making a lot of IP bets. And I do think what makes a difference between a fantastic film like a Lord of the Rings, especially if you're going to redo a whole trilogy uh, and having filmmakers attached is that you can't rush that process. You can't try to tie it into a specific type of release schedule that we've seen over the last four or five, six years um, uh, and, and beyond that. And I think trying to rush something or not give the film the level of investment they need to kind of hit the point that they were, you know, the Oscar winning Lord of the Rings movies are something as big as Avatar when every movie kind of feels big. You know, how do you make it feel exceptionally big, like a Maverick or like an Avatar? My only concern is that I don't know if Zaz is the leader to kind of oversee that type of talent and that right. commitment to talent. But but I do agree with you. I think like betting against Lord of the Rings is not a smart move. Right. And, and I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think when when um Peter Jackson and his co-producers are mentioned in the statement. Like, I know they're hanging out in front of investors, but that's the one that makes me think, okay, well, there, there are a couple ways this could go. And one of them is that Peter Jackson says, yes, I will be involved in some way, not necessarily directing a trilogy, but I will be involved or we will be involved. And that might be, you know, the equivalent of James Cameron saying, I'm going to make an avatar movie where, where it's like, okay, we're going to plan this and we're going to have a budget and you're going to give us the time frame and like, and have it be sort of like that creative leadership that makes it not just let's rush a movie out because we need to have a movie out, but instead is sort of like part of a bigger plan, but you need somebody who's got kind of the, the, um, the credibility and the gravitas to, to make that happen. And in, in terms of Lord of the Rings, it has to be Peter Jackson, right? Like that's the only option. So if they can make a deal with him at some level, I'm not sure he wants to direct three more Lord of the Rings movies. I don't know. Um, 
maybe he wants to make more Beatles documentaries. That'd be fine too. Uh, so we'll see, right? Like we'll see. Anyway, New Zealand would be very excited to have more Lord of the Rings movies is what I'm saying. They, uh, it, it is, they, they told the story actually on, on one of the tours I was on about how the government, they went to the government, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Philip Boyens, they, they went to the government and basically said, we need subsidies for this, um, but it, it's going to be worth it. And I forget what, how many New Zealand dollars they spent on it, but it was like the, the rise in tourism post Lord of the Rings to this day in New Zealand. It was like, it was, it, that was a good investment. They made their money back times, I don't know, thousands. It's just amazing. So uh, I recommend New Zealand, even if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, but especially if you are. This, this podcast brought to you by, by New Zealand, an entire country. Yeah, just the whole country. <laughs> they, they gave me some of the subsidies, I guess. Uh, okay, let, let us leave my, my vacation uh, location and move on to uh, uh, you wrote a piece in Puck that was partially about uh, Netflix and an interesting aspect of what Netflix's uh, strategy is now that we're in this new Netflix era. Uh, one of the things among the many things that they're doing, maybe that they weren't, uh, doing before is experimenting with pricing. And I thought Mm -hmm. this was really interesting. You, um, in your piece, you mentioned, especially interesting that, uh, Netflix, uh, cut, uh, their pricing in India and it actually resulted in a growth in subs and revenue. And this this idea that maybe in some markets, not necessarily all markets, but in some markets, the solution for Netflix to do better is to be cheaper, be more affordable so that more people say, oh, OK, I'll pay that or I won't cancel that. What's really interesting about the Netflix price cut strategy is that it's very reminiscent of early Netflix. Like it's very it's funny because I think if we establish that Netflix is in a new era, which it is, right? It's in its it's in its revenue focused era. It's not just subscriber growth era. We have to acknowledge that that can only happen because it has hit a level of market saturation in high impact markets. So everyone in the US or, you know, not everyone in the US, but people who are going to have Netflix at this point in the US have Netflix. Um, and so they can say, well, we've got really strong revenue. We've got strong revenue in um, EMEA. We've got we're we're trying to figure out um revenue in LATAM and they can do this because other competitors can't uh and so they're in a really good place to showcase it. But when you look at emerging markets and when you look at markets where they really need to figure out how to grow with subscribers, like actually bring subscribers to that platform um at a time when there's when all their messaging is focused on revenue, you get into this really interesting predicament, which which is like we need to cost we need to cut costs in order to bring customers onto our platform and this is going to inevitably negatively impact uh average revenue per user in those territories even as we see growth in those regions so you know like India right we see growth in India but we see negative arpu or 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 decreases in arpu in the APAC region because of 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 this country's impact but if you think about this just from a you know, logical consumer journey perspective. If you are in a country and Netflix, you're not really subscribed to Netflix, there's no real interest. Netflix is charging, you know, what they're charging. And then all of a sudden they're going to introduce password crackdown sharing, right? Uh, pass- excuse me, um, crackdown on password sharing. And the reason that they're going to do this in specific countries is because they are low average revenue per user, which is why, you know, the US will be one of the last countries to kind of see 
password sharing crackdowns because they're extremely high average revenue per users. And you can argue that there are 30 million missed or 30 million lost customers within the U.S. But actually what you're you're saying, you, there might be 30 million. You actually don't know if those customers are going to sign up again. And you, if, if you lose a bunch of customers um, who are free, but, you know, increase engagement overall, how does that affect your numbers, which then, which then um, impacts, you know, advertising? There's all these all these questions that come into play. So if we focus on these areas where Netflix is cutting prices, you can actually just do some simple math, right? And it's much more complex than this, but here's the idea. Let's say you're charging, uh, let's say on a, on a, uh, on a subscription, you get a dollar's worth of revenue. If you slash prices, maybe now you're getting 70 cents worth of revenue, 60 cents worth of revenue. But if those cuts, you know, triple your subscriber growth. Yeah even double your subscriber growth, your average revenue per user is actually higher. And if you guys remember, you know, this was in 2012, I think, Ted Sarandos was like, I don't want my customers to watch. I want them hooked, right? Like like this, he, there, there was a whole moment with, a uh, controversial moment with Ted Sarandos kind of saying this, like right? he wanted them to be hooked on it, you know, uh, like, like an addiction. And part of the reason that you want people to be hooked on your platform is anyone who operates within subscription services knows is that you can then charge more. The more that people feel like they need you, the more that you can charge them and they will find ways to pay for it. It doesn't mean that they'll be happy about it, but they'll do it. So if you're Netflix and you're looking at these countries and you're saying, if we lower prices, because the issue is actually getting people onto the platform, then once they're on there for a year, if we institute password um, sharing crackdown and we increase prices slightly, but people are hooked, we're seeing really increased levels of engagement. We're seeing increased level of positive sentiment associated with the platform. We're seeing them really cling to localized regional productions that we're putting on, that we're investing in. Um, then they're at a point where actually average, average, average revenue per user grows you know, pretty meaningfully in territories that were a year, two, two years, three years ago, not meaningful territories. And so it's it's funny because there is this moment where Netflix, you know, is is lowering prices, they're cutting prices, and everyone's kind of going like, man, but aren't they just like focused on revenue? Like, what does this do? And it's like, we are so focused on specific markets. And, and really, I mean, like the UK market, that we forget that while Netflix is the global leader, by far, they have huge total addressable market potential um, by expanding but into, into certain markets like India is a massive market, South Korea is a massive market, um, uh, Indonesia could, could potentially be a really big market, um, definitely parts of Africa and specific parts of Latin America. But getting people to use Netflix as their primary source, which also means to be in countries that have stronger broadband uh, and strong Wi-Fi capabilities, which is still emerging, means that you have to bring them to the platform in the first place. You know, the, 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 the Netflix does not have the same cachet in certain countries that it does here, that it does in England, that it does in Spain. And so if they lower it, but just enough that they think on average by lowering it and they're just well known enough that they can actually double or triple subscriber growth over the course of the year, they actually, again, do see a positive impact on the revenue side, despite taking very little action on their end, you know, just lowering those prices just just slightly enough um, based on what, what that means for the average revenue per user. And so I think it's like necessary. I think if they're going to be the global player, and that's what, remember, that was the reason that Wall Street helped them become a $700 stock was because they were global. It was an algorithm-defined global player. If they're going to 
you know, really lean into that aspect of their of their company, then they have to be able to onboard before they can even think about profiting uh, in, in these in these markets. And so you see this in India, where they've been playing at a huge loss for years, but they're really committed to being in that space because you know that's an it's arguably hundreds of millions of people who will sign up for Netflix. Uh, and so I, I think that gets lost in the equation is that we think of Netflix as one thing because we're so used to it. But actually beyond certain borders, Netflix is still, you know, the underdog. They're still trying to figure out how to compete with cable. They're still trying to figure out how to compete with broadcast. And that's going to require a lot of price cutting and a lot of uh, operating at a loss in those markets. The issue is that now they're potentially going to see an operating at a loss in the United States market, um, dependent on password uh, sharing crackdowns. Yeah, well, the, the business keeps changing for them, but it, it's fascinating. I, I love that they uh, they are so huge, right? That they've got different things that work in different markets, and that's just how it is. Even when you want to be everywhere in the world, you can't be the same everywhere in the world, right? You, you can't. Exactly. Okay, let's move on to Sports Corner. Sports Corner. Everybody's favorite Sports Corner where we talk about so many things that are happening and how the streaming world is completely transforming the world of sports or or is about to. And you heard it here before you'll hear it everywhere else. So we've been following this uh, Bally Sports, the Diamond Sports Group, which is uh, this thing that was set up by Sinclair Broadcasting when they bought the assets of Fox Sports Net from Disney when Disney bought Fox. It's a whole thing. Anyway, they poured everything that they bought into Diamond Sports Group, which is branded as Bally Sports because they sold a, a casino sponsorship. And they have our regional sports channels for a bunch of baseball teams and other, you know, hockey and, and basketball teams in a bunch of markets. And uh, with cord cutting and with debt, um, their revenues are down and they have not made their payments to the rights uh, as a rights holder to the teams, the baseball teams that they broadcast. And uh, they're probably going to file for bankruptcy. And, um, m- you know, there are some reports out there. Major League Baseball is exploring all of its options. It's actually hired some people who uh, are experts in in broadcast and, and are building a essentially a broadcast group within Major League Baseball. And it sounds like this is all part of their plan to essentially, potentially anyway, take over the broadcast rights and responsibilities of any uh, any channel like Bally Sports that is unable to pay the teams what they're owed for their rights. So it's a big, um, you know, it, this is this is a thing that we've seen coming for a while now, and it's still happening kind of very slowly. The challenge is that the baseball season starts at the end of yeah. this month, and uh, and. There, there are lots of different ways that we can go. I'll put some links in our show notes. Ben Thompson at Stratechery wrote a really good piece. That's it's called "What the NBA Can Learn from Formula One." But really, oh, it is fantastic piece. It is so good because it and, and it is talking about sort of like he's an NBA fan. I'm a baseball fan. I would have written what baseball can learn from Formula One, but it would be the same story. It's about it's about rights and value and who's going to have it. And you know, my guess. Oh, I should also mention that in your local market, Julia MSG announced that they mm-hmm. are going to offer to cord cutters a package where you can stream for I think thirty dollars a month um all of the local sports that they own. It's a again or like ten dollars a game or ten dollars really want to see the Islanders lose per game, which is I would not make that deal, but I guess <laughs> it's there if you want it. This is on the heels, of course, uh Nesson and Boston uh may have have the same offer, this idea that some of these 
channels that are our cable channels have decided, well, we're going to uh, maybe because of uh, if you own your own cable company or depending on your deal with the cable companies that are paying you, you could also go over the top. There's, you know, I think it depends on what the contract is, but uh, and, and what your leverage is. So, for example, as Ben Thompson pointed out, um, all of the NBC sports uh, channels in places like uh, the Bay Area and Philadelphia, um, that is Comcast, but also they have the leverage of all the NBC and NBC Universal channels being ca- carried on local cable as a way to f- sort of keep the their sports channel in the bundle and be paid for. So all of this is going on. Uh, Ben's point is, uh, he, he goes through a lot of the details of, of like, the dropping revenue and cable cutting, uh, opportunity from streaming. He goes into something that we've talked about here about how you 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 ca- can't just cater to the hardcore. You have to cater to the sort of uh, milder fans, people who will who are not going to pay for an expensive streaming service, but will watch a game when it's on, or will watch some games when they're on. And that's also, I think, potentially how you build the next generation of fan. And we've seen with things like Apple's deal with MLS, how there's a it's a hybrid deal where some of Apple's uh, broadcasts will be rebroadcast on linear. Um, and then others will be given away on streaming for free as a way to like not put it all behind a paywall because they don't want that. Um, I, I'm curious what you think about where the end game is here, or at least the mid stage of the end game, because you know the end 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 game is probably everything is streaming. But what struck me in reading Ben's thing is I feel like things are not going to change necessarily as radically as we think, unless you're maybe in a Bally sports market where things might be weird, right. but that the end game is, is more that it, that the exclusivity of these linear cable channel broadcasts will go away. That, that, that we're going to enter a world here where you've, you can't use the existence of live sports to force people to stay on cable or satellite or right. a, a VMPPD because they you 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 just can't you you're you can't shut those people out and so you'll end up in a situation where um, everybody's going to have whether it's major league baseball or it's individual channels or it's individual teams everybody's going to have to say yes you can pay us and watch our games on streaming yes and if you don't want to it's fine they'll be on the TV somewhere. If you want to, if you have a TV, you'll be able to see them. Do you think that that's, that's the next stage here? Yeah. I mean, I think this is the very awkward, you know, uh, almost like pubescent stage, right. Of, of, of sports and media in this moment. And I think what gets really complicated, um, and I think we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, cause I wrote about this at puck last night. What gets really complicated is like, what you're alienating are the casual sports fans yeah. who might have tuned into a game right. if it was available as part of a package, right? Like, we talk about this on this on the podcast a lot. Like, the cable bundle was so beautiful in, like, a socialistic way. It was like, you could be the worst performing network and it didn't matter because you were part of this bundle. So people paid for ESPN and they got you. And so you might take some of that leftover audience who finish watching something and then go to watch something else i think what gets really you know like all the things we're solving for are diehard sports fans 
Right, you're kind of solving for the cord cutter who really loves the Bruins, the cord cutter who really loves the Mets or or the Yankees or whatever it might be. And they, to an extent, were not necessarily the problem you to solve for. They 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 were going to fight. They would pay for YouTube TV. They probably do it my what my partner and his friends do and they like six of them go in on like a youtube tv subscription and they like have it for 10 bucks a month and and they go about it that way and so if you're you're you're, you're not really solving for them you're trying to solve for a younger base a base who's not going to sign up for cable they're just not necessarily interested in it but you're also not coming in at a price point that is necessarily really appealing to those who already have a youtube tv and now again but if they're diehard Yankees fans, they can't get, you know, yes on YouTube TV. Uh, they will, they, I could see them going out and saying, okay, I will spend the 30 bucks a month to have access to this. And so you're going to generate some additional revenue because you're going to have those diehard fans. Like they're going to come and follow you no matter what. You are then though going to run into churn issues, mega churn issues at the end of a season. Um, and you're also go- going to lose that audience, which is really important for advertising, who kind of comes over and is maybe interested in a game or flips over and is like, okay, I'm, I'm going to watch this now because I have access to it. And I think that is more, in my opinion, and this is this is conflating views. If you talk to I talk to many, many different sports media executives. If you talk to anybody in sports media, there's like it's it's people have different opinions on this. Um, a lot of people will tell you and, and they're not wrong that like focusing on casual fans is a fool's errand. Like you should just focus on the diehards because that's where your revenue is going to come in from. That's where you can sell to anyways. Like that doesn't matter. Um, and then the goal is trying to make more diehard fans. And my argument is always like, well, the only way to make more diehard fans is is in my opinion, there's a few different ways. Um, one is kind of like the drive to survive phenomenon. So people who got really into F1 in the United States um, and globally, but, you know, the F1 was always much bigger internationally than it wasn't uh, domestically. People who got really into big into F1 in the U.S. watched Drive to Survive. Um, and I think it helps. I'm just going to say it bluntly that all those drivers are very attractive. <laughs> uh, and so people got got really into that. And now you're seeing Netflix replicate it right there's like the golf one they've got a tennis one you're seeing all the leagues try to figure out ways to get involved in this prior to netflix hbo had like the hard knock seasons and they would do all those those fun things it's it's personality entertainment talent based getting people into sports that's one way the other way um, is kind of the the casual fans who go to bars or whose friends are really into something. And so they're hanging out and they get into football. That's how I got into football. It was like my friends were getting into it and, or were into it. And I wanted to hang out with them and I got into football. Same way I got into baseball. Um, so that's, that's kind of your, your other casual fan. And they are harder to convert. So when you talk to people in the media, in the sports media landscape, they tend to not focus on them. Like they, they are like, they, they recognize that that is part of your, your total addressable market and you want to increase it, but they're not as easy to convert. They're very difficult to convert. So the amount that you're spending to acquire that customer versus the lifetime value of that customer on on a potential conversion is just not worth it to a lot of people. when they, when they, a lot of executives, when they think about it, my argument is that as, Sports become, outside of the NFL, and then, so it's tier one in the U.S., outside of the NFL, and then in the tier two in the U.S., let's say, is NBA, MLB, um, NHL, and I'm going to throw soccer, both premier um, champions and Mm -hmm. MLS kind of in that. Outside of that, sports gets really fragmented. And so the leagues that are trying to find audiences and kind of convert those audiences and as those main sports really become fragmented as well you know the casual fans are your biggest hope of building out 
the future success of the league, which then builds out the future success of sports rights, because then it builds out diehard fans who will then tune in. And I think the more that we try to solve issues for diehard fans, the more in the cold you leave the casual fans, and that is going to have a hugely negative impact um, on uh, uh, the, the, the growth of the sport. And I'll give you my, my one last kind of thought on this. Part of the reason, and I love Ben's piece on this and what Jason was talking about, that like F1 is figuring out its digital media rights. The, 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 the fact they're trying to make it as easy to consume as possible is like they understand that the conversion from the Netflix audience to the F1 audience, as opposed to the other way around, right, which is much easier to go from being an F1 fan to a Netflix subscriber, to go from a Netflix subscriber to an F1 fan, to find to being someone who's like trying to find a way to watch F1 races um, can get complicated. And so F1 has tried to make this as seamless as possible. It, it's still not perfect, but they've tried really hard to do that. You kind of see this um, with NBC and, and um, Paramount, where they're like, they've got their games for football on Paramount Plus and, and Peacock, and their argument is like, you just sign up for this and, and you're going to have that game, no problem. The more complicated it gets with RSNs, the less your ability you have to convert those casual fans who are interested in the sport because of something else they've seen and are just like, I don't want to deal with this. Like, this is way too complicated. And that is what's going to be the death knell. It's not that the diehard fans, they'll pay. Like, they'll pay whatever you want. And then you get into a situation where you get into your, you know, business 101. What is your consumer base? Are you an Acura, a Beamer, or a Lamborghini? And if you're an Acura, which is what all these sports leagues are trying to do, then you need to appeal to the most people at the lowest price point and the easiest way to buy it. You can go into any, you know, Honda dealership. Is it Honda? Is that girl? Whatever. You go into any Honda dealership and you buy your car, you buy a Civic. If you want to be a Lamborghini, which is a very small audience, but you can charge them what you ever you want to charge them and they'll sign up for it. This is arguably the Sunday ticket audience. You know, then you bet that you have a much, much, much narrower base, but you can charge more. And so you can therefore find your revenue that way. And I think the RSN specifically are like stuck and they, and they, they want the best of all those worlds, but the strategy around it gets really, really complicated and you end up icing out a huge potential audience. It's a, I mean, there's no easy answer here, but it does feel like, I mean, the, the, there was a time when all of the RSN deals were huge because the value built into them was um, as a bulwark against cord cutting. And guess what? people cutting the cord anyway. Right. So it, it can't be an either yeah. or anymore. And so we're, we're, I, I think the good news for fans of sports who want to cut the cord or who have cut the cord and found it hard to get sports is that we are getting to the point where they're going to have that opportunity again. Right. Where if I only am getting um, my Fubo or YouTube TV or whatever, so that I can watch San Francisco giants games, I will probably be able at some point soon ish to um, do that, um, which is good. Now the, the, the Bally thing is an issue because if you're in Phoenix, like my mom Mm -hmm. and you're a diamondbacks fan, then, um, and there's a, that's a Bally city. The question is like, is that channel going to exist? Is it going to have games on it? Um, Is it going to get taken over by major league baseball so that they can broadcast games on it? Are they going to be somewhere else instead? Are they only going to be streaming? Like, 
in the in the long term, no, but in the short term, right. maybe because of the bankruptcy. So that that's where there's going to be some more disruption. But um, in the long run, I think the good news is I, I I believe I really do believe, and this leads us to the other uh, another corner here in the sports corner, um, which is the um, which is this idea that you have to have both. You have to have sort of like the stuff that's that anybody can find that you could buy in a bundle and like it gets a lot of sports or it gets all the sports like and and cable is actually not a bad place for that right now um or you can just get it yourself and take care of it um so this other story that i wanted to talk about and you tweeted about it it is a cnbc story about espn working on a uh live sports streaming hub and this is fascinating because what they want to do is they want to they're the worldwide leader in sports right at least they've told us that all along and somebody at ESPN has decided, well, here's an idea. What if we make an ESPN, a version of our ESPN app that shows what live sports are going on everywhere at any given time, anywhere on any streaming service or TV, including ours, but not just ours. And then if you've got Paramount Plus or whatever, we'll take you there. And if, if to see that game or Peacock for a, a major or a, a Premier League game. And if you if you don't have that service, we'll sell it to you as a channel inside the ESPN app, uh, which is kind of brilliant. Um, and uh, you know, because Amazon and Apple do that reselling of content inside, and it sounds like that's sort of what they what they want to do as a moneymaker here. But also, it makes the ESPN app your hub for all sports watching, which is pretty good real estate if you can if you can build on it. Um, your your take on Twitter that made me laugh so much is exactly what I thought when I read the story, which was um, this should probably be a feature on platforms like Amazon's Fire TV and on Apple TV, like. That that was my initial thought is like ESPN's probably going to be more committed to this and have better data. But the reason the only reason this is happening is because Apple and Amazon and Roku have not done it, right? Like cuz this feels very much like almost a platform feature that like you should have a live streaming sports view that shows you all the channels and then launches them in the right app. And yet none of them have really done it well enough that uh they haven't left this opportunity for ESPN to maybe come in and say, you know, we will show you all the sports, whether it's on our air, you know, our streaming or or not. I think it's kind of a brilliant idea. Yeah. And the the interesting thing about this is that I was very I'm very lucky um, in my role to talk to a lot of very smart people. Uh, and so I was talking to a lot of smart people who are working on this, not this project, but this exact type of idea. And what is fascinating about, and this is kind of like my favorite place to play, is like you are fundamentally trying to plan for fundamental consumer behavior shifts. Um, I think in the piece, I argue that, um, to Jason's point, like, like this is the Amazon channel Apple Play that Apple has spent a lot of money on trying to figure this out. They just can't. Yep. If anyone here has an Apple uh, TV and you are watching something and you get the like, um, we've it's, this is a big Knicks household, unfortunately, because Kevin loves the Knicks, and so I constantly get like Julius Randall's going off. Like I, you get those push notifications. Um, very rarely do those push notifications actually lead me to click onto them, um, and very rarely uh, is it something that I'm thinking like, well, if it, he is going off or something's happening, I'm going to navigate the Apple interface to go and find it. And so ESPN's argument 
is that they are the home of sports, right? If you Google something, ESPN comes up, or if you go to ESPN.com, so this is the other big issue, right? Like there are like there the argument is that people are going to ESPN.com instead of Google to find out where something is playing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's my counterargument. My 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 argument to the ESPN idea, which is not a bad idea. Like I, I I see where they're coming from, right? If the idea is that they're losing out on the attention because the game is streaming elsewhere anyways, if they can make a dollar or two dollars off of people using their aggregation hub to go sign up for Peacock or just to increase the amount of page views, which will then increase the programmatic advertising that you can bring to the site um, and therefore make revenue off of lost attention share anyways, like why not for little investment? Totally agree. Totally agree. But here's the fundamental issue with it. They're trying to solve for Google when they need to be trying to solve for Reddit. And what I'm, what I mean by that is if you talk to anyone, if they're going to watch a game and they don't want to pay for something, they're just going to go to Reddit because almost every subreddit has a link. And it's, and this is not like, this is not to say that Reddit condones piracy. Like they've tried to really fight, fight this uh, the way that Google has, um, and it's just, it's, but it's just not working. Like anyone knows how to do this. People within sports, like people within sports media will tell you that they go to Reddit and they're like, okay, well, where can I go watch this game? Or, and the, 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 the thing I was using to kind of explain how I think Gen Z, Gen Alpha really approach it, Damar Hamlin, when that happened, everyone in my life who does not watch football um, and but but was hyper aware of it because it was being talked about on Twitter and they were getting push notifications, they went to Twitter because the ringer uploads videos 30 seconds after the major thing happens. Um, whether it's a touchdown, whether it is a beautiful Travis Kelsey patch, whatever it is, right? It's like you go to Twitter and there is a video. You go to TikTok and there is a stream or there's a video. People are not going to necessarily pay for another service um, for, a, a, for a game uh, that they're trying to catch a moment of. And this is like my last point about sports. And again, this is from a casual fan perspective because ESPN is not solving for diehard fandoms. Like people who are diehard fans know where their games are. Like, and they've, <laughs> Jason and I might still have to Google where a game is playing, but we have an idea of like what services have what. And like, like we, we know how to navigate that. Casual fans, the issue with sports is that sports, and like when we're talking about this, we're talking about moments, not long, not full games, are ephemeral by nature. It is like, there is a moment that has happened and people want to watch that moment. You see it on yeah. Twitter. I always say sports Twitter is my favorite Twitter moment because you have diehard fans or casual fans who are at a bar watching and they all say at the same time, like, oh, or like, no way. So then people open the app because then they're like, I want to see what's playing or why everyone's losing their mind. By the time they go to do that, if they have to then sign up for a service or they have to navigate how to get to a service, the, the the ephemeral moment is over and they're not necessarily going to watch the rest of the game because if they're not interested in football or basketball, but they were interested in that one moment, that one moment is over. This is why replays are so popular on TikTok and, and YouTube and the internet in general. It's why there are whole apps dedicated to just replays because that's what casual fans want. And so I think again, like, like this is like my whole thesis is that everyone is trying to solve for diehard fans, which <clears throat> makes sense because they're where your core revenue is going to come from. So if you are in this transitional moment, as Jason really like elegantly said a few minutes ago, if you're in a transitional moment and you've got like people who are kind of watching on TV, but then they're also going to watch elsewhere and you need to capture that audience, you're trying to capture the diehards because that's your main revenue. But if you're a league or if you are a network that is thinking about how to engage with the next generation of sportsmen who are growing up 
kind of trying to get into sports, you know, via their parents, or whatever it might be, and they're, they are just consuming it in a different way. What you need to solve for is like the ephemerality and the internet and how people navigate that to get what they need out of sports. Um, and so I, 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 it's, it's one of my favorite to- topics to think about. I think about it all the time. Um, in many ways, because that moment in sports that you're trying to solve for is, is the exact issue that, um, digital media is trying to solve for, which is like, I don't know about you, Jason. But when I get, like, in my puck piece, I make this example. When the Alex Kavanaugh news broke, like, the verdict about uh, his his trial, I got a push notification from, like, every single publication. It was, like, the Journal. It was the New York Times. It was WAPO. It was Apple News. All of them were, like, here. And I didn't click on any of them. I just saw it, and I went to Twitter. Because I was like, oh, I want to see what the journalists are saying, because I'm just going to tweet about it. And as someone who, like, worked in digital media for many years, Jason has a website. Jason's worked in media. (laughs) Like, that is the fundamental issue they're trying to figure out. It is like, okay, we've gamed SEO, but how do you game, like, mobile usage if they're not already on the site? And they click from Twitter sometimes. They might click. But people are also like, I don't necessarily need that. You know, you've got – this is um, um, Kevin Sistrom, who's the co-founder of Instagram – uh, and his partner, I forget his name, they launched a whole new app called Artifact, which like is a basically an aggregator. It's basically Flipboard for like a g- new generation. But the thing about it, and I've been using it just great, I don't click on the headlines. Like I see the headlines and I don't click on the article. I'm like, okay, like I kind of get what I'm getting out of it. Um, and I think sports runs into a very similar issue, which is why the ESPN hub to me is really interesting because I fundamentally see the reason for it. And I think it's a good idea because if you can capture even 10% of miss of like missed opportunity and revenue, why not? Um, but I also think it doesn't solve for like the big issue in sports. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, what I see is that it is potentially solving for the issue of, you know, essentially I want an aggregator that properly will list what sports I care about that are, that are on now so I can watch them. And I, you know, it's, it's the rebundling without necessarily rebundling of saying I'm, we can't, we can't necessarily rebundle all the services, but we can rebundle the, the data of where they are. And then we can get you to the service if you have it or sell it to you if you don't. And I think there is value in that, in just the simplicity of I've marked my favorite teams because I have that. I have this now where uh, just because NBC Universal has split between the the uh, Premier League games they put on USA Network versus the Premier League games they put on Peacock. And there's no way to tell until you go look about what game is on USA Network. And the USA Network game is not on Peacock because Comcast would like you to pay for cable, please. And and just that is frustrating where if I can just mark like Arsenal and go and, and bring up a sports interface and say, play it now. And, and Apple has some of that. It doesn't work. Uh, Apple's challenge is that I think a lot of Apple's technology doesn't really work well with M- uh, MVPVDs, right? It doesn't really work well knowing it's on... A, a TV channel, it's on USA Network, and you have Fubo or YouTube TV or or Hulu, and and do you have that channel? And now we'll take you there, and that stuff just kind of falls apart. Um, but so I see value in that, but I also see what you're saying, which is there's this other aspect of sports that would be it would be interesting if ESPN is the the kind of creator of the the Sports Center uh, highlight, right? Could come up with a way to also um, be a like if if they could make deals with all of these services to do like i don't know snackable uh highlight clips that then also lead you back to their streaming service or something like that there's there maybe there's a deal there but i i I don't think you're ever going to beat uh 
virality in social media for for sports clips. I think that that's just going to be kind of floating out there. But um, anyway, I, I think this is an interesting strategy where ESPN it can take its brand and its knowledge, because that that to me is the answer here is that, yes, you're right. Apple or Amazon should probably be doing this. And Apple is trying. But what I, I just get the sense that they're never going to try hard enough for it to be good. And if someone else with a big brand name like ESPN can leverage all their data and put it across lots of different platforms, they could win on data, right? Because if your data is bad, nobody's going to use your sports thing. You could build it, but you got to maintain it and you got to have people looking at it all the time, right? Every minute of the day in order to get all that information right. And, you know, I don't know about you, but like as an Apple TV user, it feels very much to me like Apple is um, okay, not great, but okay at building um, software features. And and they feel not very good at all at maintaining um, data about stuff right. and especially maintaining data on a constant basis, which is what sports requires. So I, I'm just not a believer that Apple sports interface, unless they're really, I know Apple's investing in sports, but I'm not convinced that Apple is investing in the data that we're talking about here to a point where they could basically beat ESPN at this game. But maybe, I mean, they should, they should, don't get me wrong. I think they should, but I don't know if they will. And ESPN, it's like in their blood. This is a thing that they have to do. So it's a good fit. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think regardless, it's um, – Jay, just on this conversation as a whole, we should just do like a whole Sports Corner episode, but also like we should just do an RSN episode. If you guys want an RSN episode yeah. where Jason and I really nerd out <laughs> on this on the complexities of this stuff, um, let us know because I think – I think we would all enjoy that. The regional sports corner. Um, yeah, well, I think there's going to be news for us to jump off of to talk about it, too. So I think that, that that's going to happen soon um, with the Bally Sports stuff, especially. Okay, um, before we go, I want to get to a couple of letters really quick. Um, first letters from Zach. As a longtime streaming app builder, I love this podcast. Thank you. Two questions for pondering as we focus more on revenue. Uh, will detailing of service tier mixture become more the norm than just subscribers? This information is sparse now, but critical to ARPU and related. Can ad-supported tiers significantly help an ad-free service? The market unlock from ad-supported to ad-free seems obvious, but the other way seems harder for con- customers to accept. Love to your mother's, Zach. So good question here from Zach about, um, it, you know, how much we talk about subscribers now, but is... is tiering going to be the way we have to think about this stuff going forward that that you know services aren't like showtime stuff is going to roll into the paramount plus uh premium tier and we we've seen uh sometimes it's an ad free tier sometimes it's a premium content tier how should we uh how should we and will we weigh kind of tiers over overall subscriber numbers oh it's an interesting question i think so, so my my argument with tiers um, specifically is so okay. Let me let me do this really quick just because I've been spending a lot of time with this with certain clients. So fast, right? Free advertisement supported right. uh, TV. So it's like your freebie and Pluto. They don't offer strong conversion funnels, which means that if you're watching uh, NCIS on Pluto TV, you're not necessarily going to go sign up for it on um, Paramount Plus. Like you might have them together, but you're not, one does not lead to the other. Um, It really is the most passive of passive entertainment. The way to think of 
the free ad supported tier is really as a an area that has strong engagement on titles that do not cannibalize your price your 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 premium tiers which is a way of saying if you have shows that are being watched uh at length on a free basis but they are no they're they're, they're not necessarily not signing up for a streaming service because they have access to that show, um, like a Criminal Minds is actually a good example of that, then having that really is great for advertisers because they see the engagement. And so you're offering this for free. But what you can do with the tier is tease out your originals, right? So um, there, there's a bunch of uh, Spanish companies that do this really well. Um, so you can have some originals that are on streaming. And you might have like a few episodes, you might have a season, and then people are coming in for Criminal Minds, like they get the full thing or whatever it might be. They come in and they're like, oh, this is great. This is why I'm here. And then they might check out more active form of television. So that's like your original series, like a Stranger Things. And then that might encourage them to sign up. But it really, the way to think about it is like the free should exist purely as an engagement play with that does not cannibalize your SVOD um, audience and consumer base um, with a way to also tease out, but not designed to convert customers. They're two separate things, but they should be bundled together because people like the idea of free stuff. Yeah, I mean I I um I like the idea of free stuff. I also like the idea of paying to like not see the ads or to get access to more stuff. And and I I you know, I don't know. I it's it's funny. I I keep thinking what's the harm if you're Pluto or Freevee in saying you want to pass 5 bucks a month? Fine. Right? Like but it's not their brand promise. Their brand promise is, and I guess that's the other question is, is it an exclusive or is it already available? Like you, you, gave, you gave a very good example, which is Pluto is owned by Paramount. So um, Pluto, theoretically, what you should be doing is driving people who really want that, that higher end service to Paramount Plus from Pluto if they really care. Um, I don't know. And these, these, I should also add, these um, shows are typically fully amortized. So what I mean by this is like they're not paying much to have them. So if you're vertically integrated, Pluto TV, a majority of which is like Paramount owned content, right. they're not paying much in terms of licensing out other shows or paying off those series. It's just a place where they're like, we have this sitting on the shelf. Why don't we just put it out somewhere? And instead of license, licensing it out to other companies, it's like we can just collect additional ad revenue yeah. and it's not going to cost as much. I mean, they, they it's owned and operated, so they do have to run the platform. But if you're like, my opinion is if you're a WBD, this is really controversial, but I, I agree with what they're doing. You have 40% of content, let's say on HBO and HBO Max and across your, your platforms that no one's watching. And you're like, well, we don't think we can necessarily charge high rates for this on like Netflix. We don't, or we don't want to give it to Netflix, but we do want to give it to Tubi because we don't see that as a competitor. And we're going to take a huge percentage of the ad inventory because we are a, a brand name that people really value. Right. And Fox is like, sure, we'll give you whatever you want for it. Now it's not just sitting on the shelf, right? Now you're kind of like doing it's over there. It's making it. something for us. And so and it's not helping out our competitors really. And so there's there's a way to be in fast and think of free tiers without having to actually launch a free tier. And in terms of um um, the pay services having different levels. I, I mean, it does feel like that. I mean, Netflix has been doing that for like quality and, and stuff for a while, but with the, with the ad and non ad tiers, or maybe even unlocking other programming at the higher tiers in the end, that all, that all rolls into ARPU, right? You end up having to uh, look at ARPU and say, 
um, well, you know, the, what's the mix? What's the mix of premium to non-premium? And does that increase your, your ARPU? And I imagine that that will continue. But it, 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 the more complex the product is, the less useful a raw subscriber number is, right? Right. So, right. so I, I think that'll naturally evolve over time. Um, thank you, Zach. Uh, Zvibo wrote in, uh, referring to us as J1 and J2. I feel like we're in a cat in the hat book now. I love uh, this. Says J1 and J2, I completely agree with your episode 35 comments that cancellations after one season are something we are going to have to live with. However, do you think there is a way in which Netflix, et cetera, could do this, which is less aggravating for fans and which might better retain long-term value, i.e. being more willing to fund a feature-length miniseries wrap-up when not renewing so shows have a satisfying conclusion? It's hard to commit to new shows at the moment. Um, I, I've said for a long time that I feel like if the end is near, if the end is in sight, I, I just, and I don't, I don't know if there's data to back this up, but I have a gut feeling that the long-term success of anything on streaming is impacted by the question of does it have an ending or not? I get asked all the time about shows like Counterpart and Patriot, these amazing shows that I love so much that had a couple of seasons. It's like, does it have a good ending or not? Because people don't want to commit to watching something that just ends. And there are other shows that I started watching, like I was watching Why the Last Man on Hulu and it got canceled. And I loved the comic, but like we got three episodes in and I thought the show was fine, but I just stopped watching it because I thought, what's the point? I'm going to get to the end of season one, there'll be a cliffhanger and then we'll never see it again. So I personally, I believe, right. and, and this is an important detail, if the end is in sight, if it's doable, and if the, the product is successful enough that you can stick any kind of landing, I really do believe it makes it more valuable in the long run, more rewatchable, um, whether you're the, you know, the streamer, but also if you're the studio, I think it benefits you to have something that is, is, has an ending. But I'd say the, the caveat there is what I just said. It's how can, can you get it there? Can you, does it make sense to fund a four episode finale or a, or a, a movie or a mini series or something to bring it to an end? It probably the best thing to do is to renew it for a final season, which, which does happen a lot. I will note, uh, Paramount plus recently canceled Star Trek discovery, um, which, you know, five years for a streaming show, it's a pretty good run actually. Um, and the Star Trek fans were like, Oh, but seven years for, old star trek shows like yeah okay but but we live in a different world now and five years for a streaming show is pretty good however i will point out that because of the franchise value of star trek um they already shot that season they shot it last year and in announcing that they're they're canceling it they actually are going to go back and shoot additional stuff to get an ending and that's why you spend that money is because there's franchise value and catalog value in bringing your show to a nice ending. If, but, but like if there isn't, then no. Right. So that's the short answer is I wish, I hope that programmers and, 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 uh, and streamers are considering the value shift of like, you know, this has some value over time, even though we've reached the end now. So please let's give it an ending and not just cut it off. Most of the abrupt cutoffs you see are because that didn't make sense, right? I think that they probably do make a lot of that calculation, but I, I just wanted to say to Zvibo that, that I agree a hundred percent. Like I am far less likely to watch a show knowing that it just gets hacked off at the end of the season and is never seen again than I am something where somebody who's watched it all can say, oh, no, it it has an ending like counterpart. Like could counterpart have gone on for five more seasons? Totally. Does it have something that I consider a satisfying ending? 
absolutely. So that's the difference. And Patriot is similar, right? Patriot could have kept so, going on, but it's a great ending. So that's what there, I say. There's a term in the industry called um, renanceled. And it's when they <laughs> ah, yes. renew it and cancel For it a at final the same season, time. yes. And that's exactly what... So what companies do, right, is they look at the projection of what the season's going to do, um, different different metrics for different platform, um, distribution platforms, so like linear versus streaming. And if they go, hey, we don't think this is really going to do much after the next season. We're just going to cancel it. They'll they'll cancel it. They'll renew it. And they'll say, yeah. also, it's going to be the final season. Wrap it up, and they know that. Yeah. And they know that ahead of time. They're like, we're hyper aware. What I will say is that, like, when we, wait, to your exact, to your, to your specific point about, like, does this, can this help with churn or whatever remember netflix still has the lowest churn in the industry like like no one's people aren't really canceling there's a lot of noise about people canceling netflix but not many people are actually canceling netflix um and so when they cancel shows it doesn't actually have a huge impact on churn it does have impact on sentiment within those groups remember that netflix operates in um taste clusters so something being canceled might seem really bad for um a group of fans and then it's like other people are like well my shows don't get canceled and it's totally fine and half of them don't even use netflix for netflix originals um what i will also say is that this is a very specific nuanced thing over the last decade because the way it used to work and jason will remember this is shows were rarely ordered to season shows would have like four episodes they would make and the networks would watch it and they would go like unless you were hbo showtime or, or amc uh and fx you would they would be like if the audience shows up, we'll pick it up mid-season. It gets a full season pickup at the mid-season. Uh, and, and shows got canceled all the time. Like, it was like they would order 40 shows and maybe two of them would, like, get through. Um, it was a waste of money. Uh, it was not a smart way of doing it. And Netflix kind of changed the way that they approached it. But the reason that cancellations really feel strong, though, is because you get the whole first season. And you're, like, in it. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm watching it. I'm in this first season maybe a second season, and then the cancellation strikes, and that really sucks. Um, so while we're seeing, you know, less original hits break through over the last few years than in the years prior, it's less to do with the early cancellation and more just to do with the level of, of titles being released. Um, I am hoping that as peak TV starts to come down, as investment starts to come down, you will just naturally, by, by uh, nature of necessity, see more shows play out. But also, like, there's no actual financial reason for them to change anything about what they're doing. So uh, is uh, our succession and Barry uh, renanceled? I, I think so. You know what it is? I, I, I was literally just tweeting about this. I think succession and Barry also, I mean, I love Casey Bloys. I think HBO is more protective of its brand. And also HBO is much, much, much more aware of talent. And so I think HBO is the kind of like, oh, they're going to end it. And we might miss out on like $100 million. And we might miss out on $50 million. But in the long game of things, if that means that we get Alex Berg and um, Jesse Strong for like another show and they're at home and they're with us. And also our shows continue to have like what we refer to as um, really low off-season decay, which just means that those shows generate meaningful revenue even when there is no new season because people keep finding it out. Um, that is arguably worth more to HBO not HBO Max, but HBO, HBO than anything else. So I think they, I imagine Casey sat down and was like, these shows are, you know, they're at, they're at peak audience. Barry's probably a little bit past peak audience. Succession's at peak. If they want to end the show, cool. Like, like, let's, we'll figure out a way to end it. And we're going to maintain those talent. So, so there's a lot on the HBO side that is different from like what Netflix is doing, sure. which Netflix orders 
you know, a thousand shows and they can only <laughs> keep like a hundred. HBO right. is very specific. Like we've ordered this show and we're working with talent to really hone those relationships. Um, but yeah, I, I think whenever you're thinking about the financials, look at Netflix churn, right? It's not high, it's low. And so right. they, there's no huge impact on them canceling. Right. They have done it occasionally where they have done the uh, revival, you know, the movie movie send off kind of thing. And I, I think there's I actually this dynamic always worked better when the uh, when there was a studio involved that was thinking about the long term value of the property, right. because the studio would end up cutting a deal usually with the broadcaster where they would like the broadcaster would pay very little in fees and the studio would eat it um, in order to get the show to an end. Because they are the ones, the, the studio would be the ones who care about the long-term value of the property. Uh, that that happens occasionally. But most of the time when something gets canceled, it gets canceled because I know you're watching it, but not nobody else is. And the, the reason it's canceled and not revived or given an ending is because it doesn't pencil out. Like, bottom line. Like, if nobody's watching it, it doesn't. It, anybody who might come to it in the next five years, that number is going to be pretty low regardless. And that's why it just it just gets... Uh, gets the axe but it doesn't always happen sometimes not um, but i do believe that that should be part of the calculation is like more Agreed. people more people will stream your thing if they know it has an ending that's the bottom line i think a lot you talk about renanceling i think a lot of these uh in the peak tv era often there were multiple series orders i think in fact patriot and and, and counterpart that i mentioned i know for a fact counterpart was a 20 episode order it was two 10 episode seasons it was always intended to be two seasons and um, the beauty of that is that if you're the producers, you, you go into that 20 episode order thinking we need to find an ending after number 20 because no, you know, it, it, no guarantees. Right. And I, that's beautiful because then yourself, <laughs> you're planning yourself, your storyline, um, to, to reach a, a resting point, which is good. All right. Uh, we are done for this time, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you have a question for us, we love getting your feedback and your questions. Go to downstreamfeedback.com or I've put our uh, that, the domain I bought during an episode last year, churnvalet.com. We'll also go to our <laughs> feedback form, uh, churnvalet, uh, where we tell you what to cancel and what to subscribe to on a monthly basis. It's not a real site. Uh, anyway, love to your mothers. Thank you for sending in your feedback. You can find Director of Strategy Julia at LoudmouthJulia on Twitter and ParrotAnalytics.com. You can find me at SixColors.com and on many other podcasts here at RelayFM and TheIncomparable.com. And I'm in the RelayFM members Discord. It's a nice community if you want to uh, support us while you're doing it. Relay.fm slash downstream. But that's it for yeah. this week. Until Can I just oh, do yes. one last shout out because my grandparents listen to this. Oh, breaking and news. today is their 63rd wedding anniversary. Wow. And ha- wow. so I, yeah. And so as we're recording, um, so I just want to say happy anniversary to my grandparents. Happy anniversary. They had to wait till the whole end of the show to get there, but they got there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we'll be back in two weeks. But until then, bye, Julia. Bye, guys. <laughs>